Babies! That's what we're talking about today. Specifically, the education and development of babies and young children. Babies are my favorite. I can sit and observe little ones all day. Back when I was a data collector, I used to say, it's always a good day when you get to hold a baby. And I still stand by that. And I'm pretty sure today's guest would second that emotion. She's Ioma Iroka, founding director of the Equity Research Action Coalition at the Frank Porter Graham Child Development Institute at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And she's also a research professor at UNC. A fellow developmentalist who received her PhD around the same time as I got mine, Ioma and I used to cross paths all the time when I was a Fed working for the Administration for Children and Families. Her work looking at the interplay between family dynamics, demographics, and child experiences had a touch of the avant-garde then, and it's only gotten more relevant, more timely, and more state-of-the-art over the years. If I couldn't be a funder, I'd want to be Yoma. And her Twitter profile declares, I am Black Joy. I love it! I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. I'm Ioma Ruga, and my pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am a research professor in public policy, uh, a fellow at Frank Porter Graham, Child Development Institute, and I'm the founder director of the Equity Research Action Coalition. But I would say most importantly, I'm a mother of two, you know, young Black children who just make me be a better parent every day. But I would say, and I mentioned them because the work that I do and I'm trying to do is to make sure that Black children are fully seen in ways that's not from a white dominant lens, but one that really centers their African heritage, their Africanism, that they're part of the African diaspora. And so the the reason I really came back to UNC, so I'm, I'm at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and the reason I came back was really because I wanted to launch the Equity Research Action Coalition. And I named it that on purpose. Really, the coalition part. Everything else, I was like, eh. Uh, the coalition part, because for me, I wanted to get the idea of a village. And so the, the village being, you know, I actually spent a few years in Nigeria, which is, my, I would say, my family's homeland. And I feel like part of what I, I sort of loved about it, but also was scared about was the village. I was scared of the village. And I can say why later, but the coalition to me is a way to say, you know what, that if we're going to do work that really focuses on the, the best of black children, their excellence, their brilliance, that we need to make sure that it's done with a, a lot of people in the room. And so part of what the coalition that I, that we try to do is really begin to interrogate the science and the research, right, from a, a, a African-centered lens, begin to do original research that begins to elevate what does it mean to be Black in America, right, from the lens of Black people and not the lens of whiteness, and then begin to identify are there policies that we can really center on, whether it's policy at the local level, at the city level, at the, at the state level, national level, that better ensures that Black people are treated as full human who deserve full human rights. And then finally, for me, it's also making sure that, you know, I'm not going to be here forever, right? If you're Black in America, if you're going to be in majority of white spaces, you're going to have to make sure that you got your will, you know, figured out, that you got your exit plan. And so for me, part of it is also figuring out the gap, right? Making sure that the, the gap of, of, 
researchers or those who are in the space doing research for black children, that those who emergent scholars and brilliant people are able to be supported. And so the other part of the coalition is really around training and support and just really, I would say, is networking and making that networking and making those connections. And so for me, it is really the coalition with the idea that we have to do a counter narrative all the time about what is blackness, what is black people, who we are, and the history that we come from. That leads perfectly to my next question, because I'm thinking, one, I want you to talk a little bit about your part, your discipline, right? Human development, early childhood, babies. And then what African-centered really means, because I'm a human development person with the early childhood focus, and I have a kind of a focus on Black children, which is kind of adjacent to African-centered, which has a very specific name. So I don't want to, I don't want to take that lightly. So if you can take me from babies to African-centered education. I would say first and foremost, I'm on a journey, right? Here I am named Yomaruka. That is as African or as non-American, white, at least as non-American as you can come. Because my parents are like, you were born here in the States. You're going to be all American. But the one thing is your name will always identify you as somebody who comes from beyond enslavement, right? They wanted to make sure that people understood that we're not all just, you know, let's, we just come from enslaved. That there's more to us before enslavement. And so, so I feel like it's important for that note. Are your parents immigrants? Yes, my parents are immigrants. And then I've been in some ways, when I think about my mom as an immigrant and my dad as an immigrant, they're really two different people. They're like two, you know, one really was a poor-ish immigrant. Like he grew up in a poor, my father grew up in a poor family. My mother grew up in sort of a, I would say a well-off family in Nigeria. Like, you know, my granddad was part of the Red Cross, head of the Red Cross in the whole country. So they come from different privileges, but still very smart people. But I would say I never really thought of myself as an African. Like, I feel, like yes, I knew roots, but I never really thought of myself as an African. So when I say I'm on a journey of discovery, I'm on a journey of discovery. Like there are things about African that I'm like, oh, dang, really? So especially as it relates to America, right? As it relates to that many of the things that is given credit to, to white people, Europeans, Italians, Greeks, a lot of that was really from the continent, right? Whether it's around philosophy whether it's around medicine, whether it's around even art, like a lot of that originated in the continent, but it was somehow another information was changed, let's say it that way, to make it seem like the information either came from Western countries or came by way of Greek people or came from the States, that a lot of the knowledge actually came from the motherland and then just taken and then repackaged into like, oh, here we are. And, and so for me, I'm on a journey of really, of really unlearning a lot of, I think, I would say some pernicious perspective or perception about even Africa as a whole. And here I was, got a whole African name. So so I feel like for me, that's important. And for me, I'm trained as a developmental psychologist, right? I'm, I'm always trying to discover the human condition, but really to discover how do we make sure that, that the humans, particularly young children, are really put on a path to success. I, and for me, success is whatever the child or the adult thinks success is, right? Like our success in many ways, like, oh, did you do well on this, you know, standardized assessment? Oh, did you do well in graduating high school? All these, again, not to say they shouldn't be there, but, you know, whatever that person's success is. And of course, as you go down that trail of what do we need to do to make sure you're successful, 
you begin to discover when you unpack it that it always feels like black people always at the bottom of every single metric. Like there's not a metric I have seen where we are at the top. Whether I go over here in Omaha, Nebraska, in Silas City, over here in North Carolina, or over in Anchorage, Alaska, it doesn't matter what metric. We are always at the bottom. And even if we look at people, other people of color, whether we look at Latino folks or whether we look at Native people, sometimes they're with us too. But we are often at the bottom of that. The progress is not there. And I, and I think as you, as we look at that, we're like, that can't be, right? Because I love being Black. I'm like, we, I, have, I have been too fortunate to be around Black excellence like yourself and many others. And obviously now we're watching, you know, Katenji Brown, you know, really just show her excellence. Thank you, Cory Booker, for looking at that. In case you haven't seen it, Ioma is referencing Senator Cory Booker's remarks at Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearing that brought the room to tears. Here's a clip. And I want to tell you when I look at you, this is why I get emotional. I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're a person that is so much more than your race and gender. You're a Christian, you're a mom, you're, you're, you're an intellect, you love books. But for me, I'm sorry, I, I, it's hard for me not to look at you and not see my mom, not to see my, my cousins, one of them who had to come here and sit behind you. She had to, be, she had to have your back. I see my ancestors and yours. Nobody's going to steal the joy of that woman in the street or the calls that I'm getting or the texts. Nobody's going to steal that joy. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. So, so we know that we are a people who are, we are innovators. We literally would make a whole word. We'll make a whole food out of a, a bone and some marrow, right? <laughs> so, so we clearly know how to survive even in spaces where they're holding down your neck. So for me, this is when I begin to say, are the measures that we're using really capturing our full who we are? And yes, if you use a white-centric measure, then yeah, when you're not white, then you're probably not going to look that good. Right, right, right. right. And so, of course, for me, it, it came down to a journey of, of, of like the idea that in the end of it, I always like you study black children, black communities, black families. But I think what I also recognize in my own journey is that black people often compare themselves to how can I ascend to whiteness? Right. And meaning how can I ascend to be accepted and valued and validated by white people. This is what I did. I literally have gone through graduate school. I mean, I went to the widest schools. I went to Temple University in Philly, Boston University, University of Miami. I mean, I didn't go to HBCU. I went to all white and private, you know. So so even in my ascension, I, I, I somehow in my head was like, I need to go to these white, historically, one of my colleagues called it, they're not PWIs, you know, predominantly white. They're historically white and institutions. And I realized that I have gone through that space of trying to get validation from the white system. And even after you do, and even after I did, I realized that that wasn't enough, that that, that I, it should have been, right? I got all of that. I got the degree. I got the networks, but it, it, but it still felt a little hollow because it felt like, but my people are still where they were when I was 10, when I was not even born in many, in many instances. I mean, there's been a lot of progress for them. You know, if we look at some indicators, 
But in the end of it, we're still at the bottom of many of the totem pole. People step on us to get to the next rung. And so I, I think for me, I began to realize is that as much I love Black people, but I also know that we're always striving to be whiteness. We're trying to be in the same neighborhood. And I realized that I could not have my worth be focused on how good am I, in, am I good enough for white people? Like when, 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 when LeBron James tweeted, why don't you love me? Right? Like, you know, you're waiting for that love, like, they, but they're not. And, and so for me, what it, what it, it resulted to, what it resulted in is that, that something that is this, my spirit is not full, even though I'm in these white spaces. And I think that's where, for me, it led on a discovery that I need to embrace fully my blackness, right? And meaning both here in the States, but also that there's so much in, on the continent that I have been sold a bag of goods. I have been told, I have been trained by the U.S. system about how much Africa is terrible. And also, I was, even my family did that. Right. They, they did that. They're like, really? they're like, don't speak the language. Just speak the American English. Don't speak the home language. You know, I didn't even eat the food. My, you know, so I don't even cook. No. Exactly. Right. Because the idea is that you want to delete a part of who you are because you need to be accepted fully in this country. Mind you. So, so clearly they were going through a level of like, we're going to call you a full African name. There's no like none of my I'm one of seven girls. There's not one of us who have an American name. Some of us got like five names. None of our names has any American in association. And so so for me, I know it's almost like I'm still in that space that my parents were probably in. Like, we want you to really be proud of your heritage, your heritages and all that. But we also want you to feel, in, you know, be part of the, the American fabric. And I think for me, I realized that as much as I've tried and I, I feel like I, I, I can clearly go through the system, I also know that that is not enough for me, that my soul doesn't feel fulfilled and that the more I discover both about how much I have been miseducated the more that I unpack that and I'm like oh my goodness now I feel better because I because I, I now can really see in my in my in my mind in my brain in my heart that Africa it literally is the founding of this this society and all they did was really take it not they're not they did not only take people I always assumed they only took people and maybe took some resources I didn't know they took both the knowledge and then repackaged it into yeah. a white centered knowledge. And to me, that level of, of knowledge is almost freeing because it reminds you that, you know what, we are brilliant people. And it's, it's not just saying it, it's literally knowing it because you got facts and you got citations. That is so interesting because I think where I stand and I would, I would say that I stand firmly, but I acknowledge that many of my friends are going to say, yeah, you're just on a journey. You're not there yet. But... <laughs> You were using white and what I would say, what I would use as American kind of interchangeably. And I think that's where, where maybe the line is, right? So like, I'm like, no black American, because American is our history as well, right? And it's Latina history. And it, but everything you're saying is also right. And I, I can see the, the flex because, you know, thinking about early childhood, right? And we both started out looking for quality. Yes. Trying to define quality <laughs> childcare. That was we were both mm -hmm. deep in that, and we had like cultural responsivity and like external validity. 
But it wasn't that same hard push. And I almost like through elephant stories, I feel like everyone else is like already there. And I'm just like, am I missing something? So I'm loving that you're telling me I'm missing something because you have you have all the data. You have all the fresh data. So from your perspective, because we won't make your data definitive, I won't try to track it like that. From your perspective, universal high quality programming and you have a black child receiving that high quality African centered and you have a black child receiving that. What are you see, What are you oh. imagining? Hypothesing? Like what's the, what are the, different yeah, oh my God, that's such a think? great question. That is literally it. So I won't name this program, but there's a set of programs across the country. They're basically black early childhood pr- schools programs. And they're like, you know, 98% black. And the most of the educators are black. In some instances, the maybe the executive director is black, but not always. And those, I would say, are considered some of the highest quality programs. That's what they would, that's what you, you would be told, right? Because the measures would indicate that the degrees of the teachers would indicate that they would check off the box of what we tend to call high quality because the education, the observations say that, the money that they have to say that, the building that they're in says that they're high quality. So based on the metric that black children in these programs are receiving high quality programming. But when you really, really go in and look at even even some of their data, and even if you compare it to the other programs that are serving, maybe let's say white kids, Native children, Latino children, Asian children, you'll be like, well, if this is a black school with black everything, how come, you know, we still see the same sort of suspension rates? We still see the data look like the kids in those programs don't look like they're performing at the same level on these white metrics. So why is that? Because going being in a black school and with black educators does not mean that you're getting African, you're getting black stuff, but that's, that's people, including myself, who have been swimming and drinking a lot of what black kids deserve, right? If you, if we are drinking the Kool-Aid that anything black, right, black hole, black belt, everything black is not good, you're going to treat black children as something to be controlled, as somebody who doesn't deserve a space to think, enjoy, and be curious, and move their body, so you're going to still do what America tells you to do and mean and white America tells you to do around black people and black people do that to, you know, to, to our young children. And then when I sort of take the lens and move a little bit more towards what I think is African centered education, I feel like what first and foremost we see the difference of is the freedom of bodies, the freedom of movement, the freedom and, and just even the, the affirmation Right, because we recognize that because America is so deeply entrenched in anti-blackness, we recognize that part of our job, at least educators' job in African-centered schools, is you gotta beat into children's head one way or the other through music, song, dance, paper, visual. You that you are brilliant, that you are deserved of everything, and that you deserve to speak, communicate move around however you feel and that this space is not just a space to just learn your letters and numbers. It's a space for you to, to sort of be excited about 
it's a space that your families will want to come to, right? That there's not this sort of like rigid structure, rigid expectations. You got to speak properly, you know, or speak white, really, that you got to dress this way and got your degree, right? But there's a sense of a full village and knowing that it's not just the teacher who you see every day, that everybody from the, if you're, if there's a bus driver, if there's a, a cook, you know, that everybody is your pseudo parent, right? And that you are representing not just yourself, but your mama, your daddy, and us, because we are your village. There's a sense of communalism. There's a sense of you are loved no matter what. And I'm not saying that the quote-unquote high-quality traditional schools don't do that, but I think it's the essence of, of a child feels like, I can breathe. And, and you know, and I, and I say that not obviously, you know, saying that with the George Floyd, but I think this is... For many of us who are adults, black people, who are professionals, who have to be in mostly white spaces, there's a sense that we're always like not breathing fully. But at African-centered spaces, you are breathing fully because we already see your gift. You don't have to go prove that you're brilliant. You don't, your parents don't have to go prove that you're smart. And the metric of how good you are is not going to be based on the Peabody picture vocabulary test, right? It's not going to be based on who's going to compete faster. It's going to be based more on how much are you part of creating a community where you're helping your elders, helping those around you, right? You have maybe mixed age kids, right? How much are you being thoughtful about your environment? How much are you sort of curious about, you know, maybe materials in a classroom or maybe talking with your with your peers? It's almost like you're you're really able to determine your learning space, how you want to learn. There's not this expectation that your brilliance needs to come out in this form. And so I, I feel like there's different examples of it, but I think the things that I take from it is that is one that there's at least imagery of blackness and Africanness. There's a clear study that Africa is a continent that is as diverse as any other continent. And it's also a, an intentionality about making sure that kids know their history, right? Think about all the songs we sing and all the books that we read that basically it affirms sort of the, the whiteness and white supremacy. This In African-centered schools, there's a level of bringing in other books, right, written by African authors, by Black authors that talk about the continent, you know, the, the animals potentially, the music, the food, the philosophers. So when we think about Shakespeare as the sort of this philosopher, you're like, no, there's other people who were doing that before he was doing that, right? So, so in many ways, you begin to build this thread that there are Black people who look like you, honey, that really are part of every single sort of uh, sector from music to art to medicine to everything that you begin to build that thread. But at the same time, families are also invited in because it's not about just quote unquote teaching children, right? It's about creating a village of, of where we feel connected, right? So if I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm having a problem. I want to be able to go to my friend over here to say, what are you doing? And not feel judged and shamed. And because that's what happened even in black schools where you're like, I'm yeah. going to go in here and I hope I'm not going to be shamed or judged because I didn't come at it this way. I didn't have the right person. My, name, my hair is not done right. I look to me, high quality is one thing. African-centered is not about whether it's good or bad. It's about this is what connects you to your full self as a human, as a descendant of really brilliant people, right? It's, it's a, it's, to me, it's not even about a high quality. Is that this is you. But I think about it like with Jewish schools. If you think about Jewish schools, they really obeyed them in that you know you're Jewish. 
and you lean into right. that into that Judaism. You lean into your culture, the way you the way you speak, the way you know you read the, the Torah. Yeah, so the, you know, so they really is seeped into it, and there's no like nobody's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I'm a Jewish. This one is half the time black kids are have to be like. Oh my God, I'm so sorry that I'm black. No, it's like, it's, it's to me, I think of it in, in some ways, it's akin to that. The same thing when we have primarily Spanish speaking schools, right? With, with primarily speak Spanish people, not like the, the white version of Julie Immersion. Right, but, not Immersion. No, no, but when you, but you know, it's like you're speaking the language. You know, people's parents are coming in and talking, grannies are coming over. You feel like the school is almost a seamless transition between your home community and your school, right? Yes, it's, go, it's not perfect, of course, but you, but they know who you are you don't have to explain yourself you can speak how you want you can talk how you want and i think that for me african center spaces allow students to breathe and be and that's something that i think many of our kids don't and i think it also means that educators at least those educators african center schools are also taught differently right how you see black kids and the genius as acer hilly talks about is very different because you're you're now able to really understand that if i don't believe in the genius of my kids, that how I teach them or at least facilitate their learning is different. But if I'm being taught with all the day that black kids are not smart, they're dumb, they're dangerous, you got to control them. If you're taught that in your regular sort of training, then you're going to actually go through through your whole entire teaching of black children, trying to basically control them and train them to go to prison, in my humble opinion. One of the things that I'm, I tune into is how... It's not individual. Our systems are built like this. So nobody is sitting in an early childhood education teaching program being told control black children. What they're told is is control children and then it defaults. So I went through all white schools until I did go to an HBCU, Hampton and House, and I thrived and I had great teachers and all of that. But it's interesting listening to you. So I've, I've mentioned before that my son goes to an African-centered school, which I chose, my husband and I chose, but I chose because I, I did quality observations. Yeah, I right. ran my measures, you know. And one thing that I think about is... I had a teacher when I was young and full of energy and all this kind of stuff in my elementary school who put me in the back of the class so that I could stand up. So she didn't, she was a great teacher. So instead of saying to prank sit down, to prank sit down, to prank sit down, she was like, fine, go in the back, but just so that people can, you're not blocking anyone. Right. And that was culturally responsive and that was great. And, and I, for years, lifted it as a high point of education and being responsive to a child. And I still think it is given the situation and the circumstance and the context, right? My son, who is, people say he's, I was as hyper as he was. I is, I can't imagine that being true. And I was so worried, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, is he going to get slapped with that, that ADHD level, label? You know, is, are people going to understand where he's coming from? All the kids in that class stand up. Some stand up, some sit down. And and the seating is arranged so that it makes room for that. And I think that's the difference. Like, yeah. yes, I was accommodated and I, I thrived. I really want to be clear. I thrived. But I, it was an accommodation for to bring, whereas my son will not have the story because he will not notice his, him being different than anyone else. But I also wanted to say that the African centeredness, and I think this is what some people who don't 
understand the concept and I'm still learning it. The African centeredness, just like a Jewish focused school or the Muslim schools, don't give up the quality. You still are getting kids ready to go to college and to thrive and to, you know, we're still in a capitalistic American society. And I think for us as black people, we can understand those two things together. I think from the outside, it's like, yeah, but they have to learn math. I'm like, they are learning math, but they're learning math as something that started in Africa, as opposed to Greek scholars and things like that. That's right. So That's right. I like how you're describing this, but I also love how you and I started in the same spot. And so I love seeing what you And I'm still on the journey. Like, I'm with you. Like, I want my, if I could find an African center school, I would be like, go here. But I, I think you're right. They're still the highest of quality, probably even more so. And, and your point is right. They're not just responding to a given kid, right? A lot of times they're like, oh, make sure this kid over here and this kid over here. But they're actually creating the condition that, that the kids, all of them can thrive without having to notice that you made a modification to the environment. That the environment in of itself allows it to be responsive. Because if you want to move, you move. If you want to walk around, like, you know, if you want to use your hands versus a tool versus this, it's just like, because we know that people learn in different ways. I agree with you that, and if, I'm still learning it too. And, and I'm doing a study, uh, a, a Gates-funded project, as a matter of fact, around African-centered schooling. So I'm also learning. So you wanted to come back to Village, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, which is really funny because I'm an adjunct at one of the University of Maryland schools, global campus, and (laughs) I literally have a question from a student that they just sent me that I just read yesterday that said, when people said it says it takes a village, what does that mean? Who's in that village? How many people are in that village? And I was like, I have never had a student ask that question. So give me the answer so that I can record it. Oh my God. Well, here's my interpretation. Cause I, so let me just explain. So when I was four, my, so I was born in Texas. My dad was part of the government. So we went, so we went back to Nigeria when I was four and I remember, you know, we went back to the, one of the cities in Nigeria. And I remember when I started going to school, my mother was somehow worked somewhere, like I think in the university that's close to the school. And mind you, if I was to get into any trouble, mind you, if I was lagging behind at school or something, there was somebody who would be like, Ihoma, go, da 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 like, like there's somebody there who's either, and it could be that, or they're like praising, like, oh, I had heard. Because, you know, the village news travels fast, right? Information travels really fast. And so you may see, you know, another adult, you know, congratulate you or, or the peers say something to you. So the village, it, it's not like we're talking about like five people. It's a, it's a big, big place. But then to the actual physical, we actually did go to the village. And the village, I kind of say it almost like for those in the South, is when you go back home, yeah, almost like a small town-ish, where my parents dropped me off at the village. And I feel like, as, you know, as a kid, you know, this is a full memory. But I remember we we took this road, we went basically the backwoods, and there was like these straw huts. At least my memory says that. And my parents just dropped me off. And I felt like they just dropped me off <laughs> in the middle of the road. But <laughs> that's what it, And then there's like, and then it must have been a celebration because there was people in like straw skirts and like painted. But imagine to a five or six year old. Yes. This is some scary Who didn't stuff. Who exactly. Exactly. But clearly it was like, 
everybody's taking care of you. Like, it's literally, they're like, oh, you look like so-and-so. Here, I'll come take you. Let's go over here. The reason why people say it takes a village is because in that village, you're not all blood-related, but you're family. You're, and that's why the, when people say kinfolk and cousins and aunties, that's, it literally is an African, it's one of the things that lay people who are obviously descendants of Africans, they brought with them the idea of kinship. That it doesn't matter if we don't share the same exact blood, you know, the, the direct lineage. If you are part of who I am, my community, I'm going to take care of you, take care of your child. You know, like we're going to eat out of the same pot. If I need to breastfeed your baby, I will. Because we saw that all that happened because you're family. And so to me, the village is one of those where nobody, you don't, you, you live not for yourself. You live because your village is taking care of you and they make sacrifices for you to do well, right? So when people say, oh, I need to make sure that my parents are taken care of. I need to make sure that I honor my people's name. That's the whole village because you're like, the village is the one that has firmed me, you know, disciplined me when needed, loved on me, provided resources to my family or cousins or whoever. And so you realize that village is sort of this cocooning thing that is not only your parents, there's a group of people who are supporting you on the deepest of levels. And it may not be you directly, but it could be your family in one way or the other, right? So to me, I think it's both a psychological village, but it obviously in many instances, it really is a physical village, right? Because they're also protecting, you know, people from war and other things. There was a, a, something that came on the New York Times that was like, how come this Western country in Africa didn't have deaths, right? They're like, they didn't have a lot of COVID deaths. And they're like, are they li-? first they said, well, are they lying? Basically, it was like, are they lying? Because they were like, well, are they deaths that they're not reporting? Uh, basically, are you lying about your data? Or is this something else, right? And and I wonder, part of me, as I haven't read the whole thing, so I'm I'm hypothesizing that probably what happened is that because maybe the virus came to Africa a little later, to the concept of Africa later, and that and we know many African countries and African people, you're trying to protect not just yourself. Your job is to protect everybody as much as possible. And if you know that there's a deadly virus out here and you know that your chance of getting medication to prevent it is not high considering how people have stolen a lot from Africa and never given back, they're probably like, we need to make sure we protect ourselves. And so they probably took a lot of precautions, right? They probably changed some of their moves and and did things quickly because they recognized it's not about me and my free will per se. But I know that if I'm going to be well and my family's going to be well, we all have to be well. So I'm going to take precautions. And so to me, the village mentality, I think is one is really about honoring the elders, honoring those who make your life possible, honoring your ancestors in deep ways. And a lot of times you realize that you're fighting for things that's not about your own monetary gain, but it's really for the larger gain of your community and your people. And so that's how I look at it in many ways about the village. You know what is interesting? So part of what we've kind of touched on a little bit is this tug and pull between universalism and different identifiers. And I'm thinking about the fact that Black folks in America are the only ones who were who were brought here against our will, right? Um, everyone has, every, everyone who comes to America or has America land on them, hello, indigenous people, <laughs> goes through some, some stuff, but we were the ones who were taken away. And what's interesting about the village and the reason it resonates is because that 
is how most of the world works, right? I mean, there's that study, I can't remember the name, I'll look it up later, but the one years ago, that decades ago, that showed this little town in upstate New York of Italian Americans had like low mortality rates and low heart disease and just all these great things. And it was because they came over as Italians and they created this Italian community and they were very close and follow-up studies that, because everyone was like, well, what is it about Italians? Is it about their diet? Is it about this? And then as they assimilated into America and those, yep. those ties were broken, yeah, they're just like everyone else. And you can do that with you can do that with Irish, you can Cuban, do that with Latino, you can do that with numerous Asian yep. communities. I'm talking about the Rosetta effect here, which is actually in Pennsylvania, not New York. My bad. It is an example of the universality and the commonality of protective factors that a village or a united community can bring. The study is summarized in the PBS documentary Italian Americans. In this little town, they noticed these people, that they're not dying. They're not dying of heart disease. How are they not getting heart disease? This is crazy. Here's a community within the United States that has a strikingly low death rate from heart attack, which is the major killer in the United States. Now, why? A team of doctors descended on Rosetto looking for clues to explain their good health. They came to my house and asked me a lot of questions of your habits and all that thing, what you eat. I think it was about 100 questions of the whole thing. At least 100. I think everybody must have answered the same thing. We ate everything wrong, but we liked it. <laughs> they said it was wrong. We didn't know it was wrong. Spaghetti is not the best thing for you all the time, you know. But I'll tell you, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go with a meatball in my mouth. <laughs> When the study revealed a diet high in fat and cholesterol, doctors seized upon a groundbreaking explanation. They did this extensive study, and they came up with the bottom line. These people are not dying of heart attack because they feel emotionally safe. They're not afraid about old age because they're going to live with their families. They know they'll never starve because the guy next door has a garden and a cow. In this Italian-American community, look how they live. They know how to live. It's the family. We were ripped and brought here. But what's really interesting is, I mean, all you have to do is watch a bunch of Black stand-up comedians and they'll talk about what you're talking about, right? That village, right? That, you know, you get in trouble from every house. So we, it's something that's innate in humans. We didn't have a name for it. And we were, you know, the America as a whole, sorry, the United States of America. I'm trying to be better about that because there's a Northern America, South America. But the United States of America just was always trying to, you know, rip that apart. But it's because you said you tell people in the South. Right. And it's like, well who were black people in the South, right? But they recreated it. My, my, maybe didn't have a name. Maybe didn't look exactly the same. But that, I think that's where 
thinking about you and me and who are both, by the way, have I, have I mentioned how happy I am to be talking to another developmentalist? <laughs> I mean, I love talking to people who, who can tell me something I don't know and all that kind of stuff, but I also love talking to my people. But, but um, as developmentalists, like we're interested in how humans develop and then we get interested in, in these different, I don't want to say segues, but just different pathways whether it be based on race, gender, sexual orientation. But one of the things that we do tend to find is that it's all there. It just looks different. But when you boil it down to its essence, there's a lot that's, that's the same. Yeah, that's true. There's a human, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a humanness, right? And, and then sometimes maybe in the United States of America, because we've constructed it really from this capitalistic, economic driven kind of, foundation where when you when you are really focused on how much can I get out of something someone somebody right whether I try to you know eradicate a group of people because I want their land because I see money and power in that when you begin that way that forces people to always be competitive that forces you know doggy dog world that forces a lot of this sense of individuality but we, I think what we, what we realize, and maybe, and maybe the pandemic, I don't know if the pandemic showed us, I still don't know what it, sh- for some people, I know what it showed me, but I think what it is, I hope it's telling people that in many ways, we need to be connected, right? We are humans. And that means that we want to feel connected. We want to feel loved and valued. And the more we try to do this doggy dog world, it's almost antithetical to what we want. There's a reason why we are humans and not just animals, right? Like animals like in a traditional sense. That's part of this universality, right? That we want to feel connected. This is why we probably have a lot of suicide, you know, in some ways, some, some mental health challenges and probably high levels of suicides that we're trying to compete on each other over Instagram and who got a better body, a better house, more bling. And, and when you feel like you don't have enough and then you're like, I'm not worthy of living in, in this world, there's something about that because we've created this, this competition sort of like, how can I be better? Or if I'm not good enough, I got to go. That is not natural. And when we keep fighting our natural because we want people to tell us what we should want in this economics and beauty and the things that are just very, they're very today, but your spirit lives on. And I think when your spirit and the today are not mixing, it really causes a really hard tension point. And so when I say that the pandemic, did it teach us anything? I'm not sure. Because I think we're still like, we just don't want to do, you know, this doggy dog world. But really what we want is we want to be connected. We want to, we don't want to be in this tug war. I think that's something that's natural in many other sort of countries and spaces. I think the idea of connectedness is really interesting because I think one thing that COVID has gotten some people to see, right, is the, or the pandemic is they might not understand racism, Right. And structural yeah. racism. Yeah. That's, a, that's, yeah. a, that's a hard sell. It's hard to see something that you never experienced. Right. That you or that you don't, quote unquote, see because you're seeing it, but you don't recognize it. Right. That's right. That's right. But giving us language to be able to say that, like, Africanness is part of Americanness because that, that you're right. That separation is the problem. So if you separate people from their home, black people from Africa or if you separate Native Americans, they're still here, but they've been separated from their land, right? Like, yeah. It's that separation that causes the issue. It's it's actually, I mean, I hey, I love America. Yeah. I haven't moved, That's right? right. I didn't, I, 
I'm here. And I think all that we want, I think all that people who are oppressed in every way want is to say, look, I'm part of this fabric. United States of America, we are, I mean, I don't want to use any of the cliches of, you know, melting pot or whatever, but we are a collection, a coalition, if you will, of, of a lot of different representations and perspectives. And when you just refuse to see those things, that's where it is because, yeah, I was listening to, well, I've actually heard this in a lot of places, so I won't even name where I happened to hear it yesterday. But one of the things about keeping Black people down is it allows poor white people to say, at least I'm not Black. And I'm not, and again, because I don't think, I don't have time to blame individuals. I'm saying they live in a system we all live in a system where it is politically advantageous to tell the poor white person, at least you're not black, because then you're not worried about arguing your politics for your own cause and all those things. So again, individuals, Hey, some of you are racist, some are not, blah, 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 blah. blah. But the system is designed that way. And I think I, you know, I might, I might, when I go pick up my son today, I might have a conversation, say, with my, with the teachers, be like, I think I'm in here. You know, my, my son's been there for five years, but I'm still like, yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> but that's the beauty, because you know, you know, you don't know. I mean, like, you're never going to know enough. That's the beauty of you, right? Because you're like, I'm always learning. I don't, I, like, I don't know what I don't know, because I got to keep knowing, right? And even to you, I think your really important point about the history, that that's right, American history it's attached to many groups history but i would say more importantly that what if white people discovered that the flag that they cherished a lot of that came like the like even our in the insignia that's on the all the american flag all the numbers of stars the the stripes if they discovered that a lot of that was actually african origins what will they say right if they discovered that a lot of the founding principles in the constitution, a lot of that was African origin. If they discover that what they think is really American is really African, just repackaged, what does that say? I think to me, that's what I'm hoping to do is in many ways, we need to make sure that just like we're seeing now, the sort of attempt to sort of silence certain stories because we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. I don't think it's that. I think it's that the, the whole George Floyd mixed with the with the pandemic resulted in people questioning things, resulted in people, you know, basically being at home like, I got a bunch of stuff I can watch, the books I haven't read, I got to start reading. They were like, oh. <laughs> and I think because information, what it does, doesn't it doesn't tell you everything, but it makes you ask questions. Yes. When people begin to ask questions, you begin to look at those who allegedly are there for you. Like, wait a minute. So, wait a minute, you knew all this and you what? You didn't tell me. When people begin to do that, that's when the leaders are like, we got to put a, a, a clamp down on this knowledge stuff. We got to shut it down because if we don't shut it down, they're going to come for our, our money, our power and our necks. And so I think that that, that is where this whole we don't want to talk about Bruno kind of thing. We don't want to talk about racism and gay and LGBTQ, you know, because I think people understand the more you know the more you ask questions. And, and I think the more you're like, wait a minute. So you tell me all oh, this is really from Africa, the, the country that we think is trash, the, the S-H-I-T whole country, all of that came from over there. 
the medicine, the, the books that we read, what, that would be a whole mind F for people. Uh, and I think when, when people discover, especially that blackness is really the foundation of this country, and we know that just by the laboring part of it, right? But to know that the intellectual, like it's one thing when it's your physical labor, but if it's your intellectual property is the foundation of the country, that changes everything. And for kids and even the teachers, when teachers know that the intellectual intelligence of, of the United States of America is literally based on the continent, it's a whole different ball game. So when you see the kids, you see the family, you see them for who they fully are. And the kind of information, the way you talk about it is like, I can just be, I can just talk about it because I already know I'm brilliant. I already know the facts. All I got to do is make sure that everybody around me knows the facts. It's almost like, you know, when, when people talk about, you know, you step in and hip and like, yeah, yeah, you get, you get an extra step. And so the kids are like, I'm extra, I'm extra right. right? I'm going to get in it because that confidence is what they're tr- that that I feel like is there, there's something to try and take away. And I'm gonna just say this: there's this uh, one of my good girlfriends. She has a daughter. Her name is Erin. She's like seven years old. And she asked her mother one day, "Why is it that people with so much power, aka white people, are so worried about little old us who have no power, unless there's something about us that they really are seeking?" And I was like, "Whoa! Oh my goodness!" <laughs> A seven-year-old yeah. asks, why y'all wasting so much time on us little black folk? We here minding our business, no money. We got no money, no jobs, no education. But you still continue to make policies and all these things that's against us. Why y'all wasting so much time unless there's something else that you know we have that you want? Oof. That is the secret. Like, again, white supremacy, not about, I mean, racism, yes, bad. But it's more about power. Because you can say certain things came from Africa and maybe then they migrated and they changed and they evolved and we could all be equal as world citizens, global citizens, right? I mean, that's one of the things about music, right? Is that there's all these things that kind of are similar across, you know, across the, the globe, but be, the white supremacy says, no, I'm not going to let that rise up. So I'm just going to pretend thinking about, you know, the white supremacy that says, mm, we're going to, you know, take these Native American children and we're going to put them in these other schools and, you know, we're going to send them up to Canada and bury them and not tell anyone. Right. Yeah. And just, and just in the New York times, I think it was New York times, might've been Washington post, but I was reading about the fact that the governor of Utah vetoed the latest trans Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. So this particular one was saying that trans women, trans girls can't participate in girls sports. I'll put a link to it because he wrote this whole letter. It's on Twitter. But what he said is there are 75,000 children participating in school sports in Utah. Four of them are transgender. And only one of them is a trans girl. So to, to Aaron's point, it's like, because it's the same thing, women, same thing, right? Like, why are you guys so afraid? If, if we're weak, why are you so afraid of us standing up, right? And the amount of force that's been used to try to keep women down, to treat uh, black and brown people down, like anyone, it's an insecure power because it's based on a lie. And so any little tiny the system, which, like you said, is now this living thing that operates without the power of individuals anymore. It just seems like it, yes. it's just there. You can go to an all black 
all Asian, all whatever. And you'll still see yep. Yep. the patriarchy and white supremacy because it's a, you got to give them credit. It's a powerful, powerful machine that was built. I mean, it's kind of like the line from Hamilton, right? Where they talk about like, you know, I couldn't disassemble it if I tried and I tried like it, it's a powerful system and that needs to be recognized. But it's also an insecure system that cannot withstand any kind of push. And I feel like part of the pandemic, the response, which I love W. Kamau Bell says that people were turning into the news to get COVID numbers. And they're like, oh, what's this George Floyd thing? Because, you know, black folks been killed over and over and over again. But they were forced to look at it because they wanted COVID information. Right. And it's like so they're going, wait. This is this is happening and the power system is like, whoa, 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 whoa. no, no, no. We, we are not strong enough to handle too many people asking too many questions. Question. Bam. So let, let's 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 get back to the babies, because one of the questions I never asked and I'm just I'm just oh, my gosh. I'm just, I, I need to go back to, I need to go get, I get, need to get another PhD. I need to redo my dissertation. Right, an OMD. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I was so much on, are these measures culturally validated instead of, are there measures that have been, that originated in the culture? Part of, let's, let's get back to your work then. Is that part of what y'all are doing? So that is, so that, so that is everything right there that I think, cause right. Cause we could say measures are, you know, we say measures are valid. They're reliable, right? Meaning like if they're reliable, that means that no matter who does it, the scores are going to be the same for the same person. Valid meaning that, you know what, it, it predicts what we think, but the question of you could be valid and reliable and not, and not even matter or not be, as we say, salient or important for a given group because you're using a lens or an approach that is not commiserate with that community. So take, for example, I'm going to give a hopefully one that people really get. So, you know, we have this coding system for when we watch sort of parents and children interacting, like, right, a parent, how they're interacting with their baby. We're like, oh, how engaged is the parent with the baby? How much are they talking and, and interacting back and forth? How's the baby responding? And there's a particular code called intrusive parenting right this is that parenting where it's coded like when you see a parent who's like no move the ball over here no put this over here no baby come over here no don't do that right and in many spaces like that's terrible parenting like you know the kid needs to be a you know have autonomy they need to be able to do things on their own they need to just just let them be and then with that kind of measure that coding Parents who tend to get dinged are the black parents because they're like, well, you're likely to be more intrusive. They're like, you are basically, which means right, you're right, a black right. parent. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in the process. According to that code. According to that code. Which means they that would show up in that study exactly. as a bad parent, right. which aggregated exactly. and, you know, raised up is problematic. That's right. So, yeah. That's right. It's a problematic thing. The same thing with teachers, like in a measure we use, they'll always ding the black teacher to say that you have negative regard. They're like, because the evidence is that your tone is too harsh. You're talking too loud. You you look like you're a little aggressive with the kids. And this is like three or four year olds. Like you'd be a little aggressive. And of course, the black teacher is like, you're dinged to say that you're a quote unquote, not good quality teacher. And the measures are all reliable. They're all valid. 
but again, that's from my lens that says there's only a certain way that you should talk to children. You know, you should talk quietly, use monotone. You shouldn't tell kids what to do, blah, 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 blah. But now if you sort of take a different three, 360 degree circle or you just take a different lens, you may begin to see that, you know what, it's not that the parent, the teachers are being mean That's the, and the kids are not receiving it in that way. They're just receiving very direct communication that is very, you know, akin. There's no meanness. There's no, there's, there's, there's love in that, but they're receiving information that, and the kids understand that. The same thing with parents and children. They're doing it also in a context of love. They're doing a context of affirmation. The kids are receiving it the way it's intended. There's no kid running out there talking about, oh my goodness, Miss Smith was mean to me because she used a, a, a tone with me, right? Because it, so as long as we use only one kind of lens, and this lens is used by every, you know, other observers, whether you're a black observer, Latino, right? When you have the same sort of white lens to say this kind of behavior is bad, is not helpful for kids, that means that anybody who does that kind of behavior is viewed in this sort of negative and deficit lens. And so for me, what I'm trying to do is sort of say, you know what, we need to not I mean, look, I'm not trying to to say that white normative measures and lens are, are, are horrible. What I am saying is that we need to be more expansive in it. We, we need to be able to capture what does it mean to how black parents interact with their children, right? What does that mean to parent, you know, in a black way, if there's such a thing, right? There's no such a thing, really. But, but what does it mean? And, and how do we interpret it from their lens? Because if you use a black lens to look at that, you'd be like, they're doing a great job. They're doing a high quality, they're interacting, this conversation, the child receives it. There's a level of understanding. There's a level of familiarity. There's a connection between child and teacher or child and parent. And so when you look at it from that other lens, you're like, I would code it differently. So for me, part of what I'm trying to do is really do this sort of like, how do we develop different ways of, of not even different ways? How do we see black families and black children in the ways that they are intended, right? How do we look at their, like, for example, language, right? We speak in many ways that's not just verbal. We speak mm-hmm. with our eyes. We speak with mm-hmm. the neck. We speak with so many parts of who we are beyond just the written. Even, you know, we use a lot of oral, but we speak with our hands and our body, the way we shift, right? There's a lot being communicated. And that's an amazing gift to have where you can communicate with a bat of an eye. <laughs> Right. When we, when you could be in the same room with another black person, you look and y'all done said 50 words with literally one look and both of you received the message. Right. That, so imagine when we can capture that that is brilliant communication. That is brilliant on so many levels. And we know part of that also is because, you know, we have to be able to communicate without the masses. Mm-hmm. You know what's happening. But but it's but it's yeah. Right. But, but that was all, and because you didn't have the same language, and because they try to take that away, you found different ways of communicating, telling stories, making sure that your history and, and all the information is still passed on, even if, you know, somebody decided to sell you or murder you or whatever. So, so we have different assets that we need to make sure is clearly identified. And so that we're not always looked at as what the labor secretary said, the pathology, right? The Moynihan report, right? That often said, you know, black people, you're all number pathology people who don't want no black men in the house. That's pretty much what he said. And it's like, that is beyond truthful at all, right? We are, the, who go, who gets to send their six-year-old to go desegregate a whole white school and be spit on and will allow their six-year-old, their seven-year-old to be the only one every day to go to school with white people who, and they hate the ground you walk on because we aspire to more, right? And so, so to me, I'm trying to sort of begin to craft measures 
or indicators that gives a fuller picture of who we are from the black lens. There's an article that I lean on a lot. Yoso, uh, she talks about the community culture assets and talks a lot about sort of like linguistic capital around aspirational capital, around even just social networks and, and, and familial capital, as well as just resistant capital, right? Just by being happy, right? Just the mere fact that we are being happy, that we could complain about racism in all of its form and be here joking as hell, laughing and cackling. And people are like, aren't your people being murdered? How y'all able to make jokes? Because that's a form of resistance, the ability to still be joyful, to find hope and, and, and wonder, to find curiosity. That that is brilliant. That we can, we have the ability to walk into gum and, and you know carry a baby on our back and then go wash some dishes. That is the skill we have. We could do a whole lot, and that's with America, you know, standing on our necks. So for me, it's capturing the ability for us to still innovate, to be curious, to be happy, to thrive, even when. Everything around you should say you should just just drop dead. They're like, why y'all still here? How are you still, y'all still here? Well, and, how are you? And it's here? you know, so the term is culturally validated, right? Culturally valid, but it's also recognizing that's a valid culture. Because if you simply said that blackness in America, blackness everywhere, but we're talking about the United States of America, is rooted in Africanness, and therefore there is a there are ways that culture expresses itself. Again, just like there are ways that Asians express themselves and Chinese different than Japanese and all of that kind of stuff. But But yeah, yeah. it's like, so if you just acknowledge that, oh, that comes from a history of X, it's not a pathology, it's not a diversion. If anything, it's an assimilation. It's taking a culture and mixing it with another. Right. So it's like, okay, well, we don't have to do call and response anymore because no one's allowed to read, but we still do call and response because it's just kind of a part of the culture. And it's just what we do. Yes. Amen. Amen. Exactly. Okay. Look, I'm going to ask you, I know that I'm supposed to be done with you, but I I just, I need to, can I just a little bit? No, you don't. Okay. Okay. Because I know you have so much to say. I, you know, it's interesting. So we, so we came out of school, we got, we came out of our PhDs around the same time. So we were the young, we were young black PhDs, developmentalists. Yeah. At the same time. And what's funny is like, I completely know who you are and it's not like we were hanging out, but like we were the only ones, you know, I know that there were times that I was there and you weren't there and you were there and I wasn't there, but there was not pretty much us. Stephanie Curtin's a little bit older uh, as far as like her career wise. Sometimes she'd be in the room. (laughs) But what I want you to talk about is what has that meant? And especially on this idea that you're having a journey because we started out as junior scholars and you are very senior in your field. You are. I'm about that one, but okay. (laughs) Doesn't mean you're done. The senior emeritus. No, oh, no. I mean, I don't even think I'm a senior. I don't even think that. I think I'm still like mid-career. Maybe. Yeah, okay. Well, you're delusional. Maybe, you know, I don't know. You know, we'd be lying. We'd, like, we'd be lying about our age. I don't know. You're, you're delusional because you're senior in your field. So just like own it, live it, be it. Okay. Okay, I'll try. Okay, now I'll try. But, but seriously, like, what has that been like? That whole representing everybody? Oh, yeah, I, you know. <laughs> God, I, you know, I, I feel like, I mean, I, I, know, I forget how long we've known each other, at least, you know. Um. I feel like that journey has, for me, been one of discovery of myself, right? So, you know, in many ways, 
I leaned into more even the idea that I'm part of the African diaspora. I felt like I didn't want to be right. Like, you know, I, I leaned in even more that I'm black woman, right? Cisgender black woman. Like I leaned in on that more. So because I just, I think for me, I went through a lot of part of my school thinking I'm going to do my best because, you know, that's what like, just, just forget a little bit of, yes, I know I'm black. Yes. I live in a black community. Yes. I got black, you know, everybody in mommy is black, but it's almost like, just keep going. Don't even worry about it. Don't be colorblind basically. Right. Like, I mean, my mom never said that, but that was kind of the idea. Just be colorblind. You notice that some stuff is going down. You notice that your black male friends ain't there no more, but just, just keep going. And I think it took, and maybe, I think it was happening already, but I think it took me being pregnant in particular. Really what it was that I knew the data around me being pregnant and my potential to either die during right after childbirth, the potential of my child to die before, because I, in my family, we lost four boys. So I come from a family where there was a lot of kids lost and mostly the men, the boys, right? I feel like that particular knowledge stayed with me. And also I was very clear about, oh my God, I can go to a doctor whenever I want. I was a researcher over there at UNC and I could be like, I got a doctor's appointment three. I could go, no, but I could do whatever I wanted. But I also knew that there were many people, including my mom, who was working three jobs, who could not just go to a doctor, who could not just take time off because you took time off. There was no check. Your kids ain't going to be eating nothing but their bread and some syrup some baloney so so she she could not do that right i don't know how much that contributed but i also recognize that she, the fact that she lost four kids right that at least that i know of it could have been more speaks a lot to the, the, that vulnerability but what i recognize that my phd my education my economic place was not going to change the fact that i had a high chance of dying on my baby dying and it's not because I didn't do everything. It's because that clearly the life of being a black woman in particular in America is not just toxic for my well-being. It's also toxic for my kids before they even get to the United States of America on land after being born. So for me, I feel like that journey, I think, really was like, you know what? I've done it y'all's way. Ain't nothing changed. So now I'm going to go over here to Nebraska because that's what I did. I said, UNC, it's been real. I feel comfortable, but I'm the exceptional Negro. I don't want to be that no more. I'm good with being an exceptional Negro because you're being good to me. But over here, two of my black friends can't even get in, right? Y'all are using me to sort of traffic me around. And I felt good, but I didn't feel good. I felt like, yeah, I'm being seen. But what the hell? The people look like me on being seen. So for me, I had to get out. Went to Nebraska. And that journey in of itself was amazing in many ways because it was like, I'm a big old black fish in a big old little white pond. And so I couldn't hide, right? I was right thinking center with whiteness as whiteness can be, you know, and, and again, no offense to white people, but I was really white. But there was also an amazing, amazing black community that I knew I could say whatever I wanted. And I know they had me because I knew the gatekeepers and the gatekeepers, once you know, you know, a couple of them, you're like, they know who you are. You are you. So I was like, everybody, I know him and I, I'm good. And that was an amazing feeling to be cocooned because I know if I needed the, the mental and emotional and spiritual guidance and support, I could just go to a black meeting in, in Omaha, North Omaha and feel good with my people, get rejuvenated and go back to the white place. Right. And that was something really important that I and that's when I realized I needed to be me. Like I, and that being me did not mean I, I was you know going to be Angela Davis per se, 
But being me meant that I could now just say what I know was in my heart, that I knew the impact of racism, that early childhood was bathed in racism, and that I knew that part of who I am is to just be me, right? Good or bad, accent, whatever accents people hear, I don't know, but that I just need to be me. I know my research. I know my science. I could talk statistics all day. But I also know that it's not about whether I'm smart or brilliant, is that I need to be here for a purpose. And so I feel like my journey in many ways was like, I didn't worry about 10, you know, most of us worry about tenure track. I realized, oh, I could get the tenure track. I mean, I'm doing better <laughs> than most of y'all. I know how to get money. I know how to write a damn paper. I know how to do all of that. I was offered it, but I realized too that I'm like, that is not my destiny. My destiny is not to be tethered to an, a thing. My destiny needs to be something that makes me feel like I am here for a reason. And I'm going to be able to hear it from my ancestors somewhere or another. Like I'm going to be able to feel it. If it's not good in my soul, it's time to roll. Right. And so for me, my journey is one where I know people look like, like, you've gone from here to here. And I'm like, my body may have moved, but my work and my journey is one that is gravitating towards what I feel like my soul is telling me. And my journey has said, part of it is that you need to on, you need to on, on root, on learn, on, on just really take yourself away from getting pleasure from whiteness and white people. There's nothing wrong with that because I can, you know, I can hang around white people. That's not even a problem. But is that you need to be really safe with yourself, safe with your black skin, safe with your blackness. That you need to feel that that is who makes you whole. That to me is the journey I'm still on, right? Because every day you're being told how much black is not good, how much don't do this about blackness. But I think for me. I'm on a journey to say, you know what, racism is there, yeah. But for me, it's almost like, it's not just about racism, it's that I need to make sure that if I'm doing something on behalf of my community, I need to center my community. I need to center blackness. I need to center African-centeredness, which means that I can't focus my intention on, on white people. I need to focus my intention on what is it that who we are. Who are we as a people across the African diaspora? Whether you were dropped off early in Haiti and Barbados or you went over there to Portugal or Brazil, you got to stay or at least stayed in the continent, is that we're all connected. And what does that mean, at least in the United States of America? What does it mean to to know who you are, to feel that your identity matters, to feel affirmed, uh, to feel that you don't have to be different. You don't have to be white to be better. So for me, I think my journey is just taking me on that sort of course that I guess I'm supposed to be on, which is be you. And being you means that you know that you're part of a larger group and that you're living for and on behalf of your people. That really is the journey I'm on. And hopefully that journey means that I can in some ways interrupt the harm and the trauma that our kids feel all the time. You don't look right. You don't even talk right because y'all speaking all that African-American English, right? That, you know, you move differently. So I feel like hopefully my journey is that I'm trying to make sure that our kids are provided with a safe and a healing space to just be. Which, by the way, is part of why you're senior in the field. Because I do think that one of the things that comes up in conversations like this, whether it happens on my podcast or just over coffee, is we're in a privileged place. been having a couple of conversations about Maslow and how it's so privileged to like get to the point of even considering self-actualization, right? Like that's like, that's high privilege. And I think that wherever, because again, you and I started, so professionally we started the same, but like demographically we're very different. Although, you know, in all those Head Start meetings, 
people thought we were from the exact same place and their thing. Because they only got one story about black people. Exactly. You're all in, from, exactly. Yeah, you got one single story. But I think that there is this journey that happens and I'm in the middle of it too, but I'm just, you know, kind of being reflective that I think that if you are allowed, if you're given the space and the privilege to start thinking about self-actualization, you go from kind of counting the room. I grew up in predominantly white spaces, overwhelmingly. I always knew how many black people were in the room. Always knew. Um, and so I grew up counting without thinking, right? And then as I got older, it was more about meaning. So it was like, as a kid, just counting and recognizing, but working hard on figuring out who Tpring was, and then kind of realizing I was really interested in the human condition and going on that journey. And then it's like, wait a minute, you know that thing that happened to me when I was eight? Was that racism? Wait a minute. You know, oh, oh this thing that happened to me when I was 40, is that racist? Like, you know, so yes. like, I think, yes. and then I think, yes, having a, a child, I do think there's also this thing of, I think this is for everyone, anyone. But you you do start thinking more beyond yourself. You know, that's that's the mark of a good parent. Forget about all these indicators. Like, are you thinking about someone else other than yourself? But I think you start doing that and you do start looking at the world that you're sending these children into. Yes. And how can they be prepared, yes. number one? And then how can they contribute, number two? And you start right. getting a little bit more holistic, deeper. You start searching for that meaning. It's not enough to count and know. You're like, but why? Why? And I think for me, I know that's why I care less and less about the individual individual races, because there will always be an individual racist. Yeah. And I yeah. Like, bigot all day. Yeah, Everybody, yeah. You know, because there, there will always be everything, right? There will always be smart people, mean people, you know, racist people, misogynistic people, great people, mm-hmm. loving people. Like, yeah. We will continue to create every category. That's right. We're humans. We have hu- we humans. Yes. But I think we start to recognize in, in, in our particular fields, we start to recognize, oh, we have a little bit of power, a little bit of leverage. How can I use this for good? And so I think, and yeah, it doesn't mean turning your back on anyone or anything. It's just going, oh, wait, what else can I be doing? Is there anything in my toolbox that can create this this world that maybe I even thought I lived in? Because when I was colorblind as a six-year-old and not recognizing things and just lived in this all-white world and recognized it was all white but didn't really know what that meant, didn't know people didn't like me, I was happy. Can we go back to everyone being happy? Can we go back to Black Joy? Like, just be happy. Just be happy. I know. That's the, isn't that the psyche part? I always tell people, God, I wish sometimes I can't see everything through a racialized lens. I wish I could just be like, you know, let me just walk. But but the, but then what am I, but why? Yeah. And I sometimes I wonder, like, it'll be easier. At least I could just be like like white people. Just do your work. Get, get, get. Go to bed. Go lay down in bed. Go do happy, fun things. Don't even, I see nothing. <laughs> right? Like, see no evil. I don't see anything. So, I yeah, sometimes I think about that because it's so much in your head. But I feel like, but that's something special, right? To be able to see from many lenses, right? And I think that's what like W.E. Du Bois talked about, right? The double consciousness that is, you know, in many ways why it may feel hard. I want to hover on this point for a moment. This idea of double consciousness that Ioma mentions is the bedrock for so much that she and I are wrestling with in our conversation. W.E.B. Du Bois introduced the term in The Souls of Black Folk, 
But before that, he provided us with another eloquent framing of the concept using the term two-ness, T-W-O. In an 1897 Atlantic article, he wrote, one feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body, whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. It is a gift in many ways, right? When you can, when you can almost telepath, I know what you're thinking already about me. <laughs> you don't got to say nothing, but I don't need the data. I don't need to be a mind reader, but I can read your mind. And I can also read my mind. And I can probably anticipate what you're thinking. And I got to go do extra things so you can feel better. You know, so that's a skill. You know, we have that skill. We can read a room. We're going to modulate ourselves, right? And then, you know, do all this because we already know what you're thinking before you even open your mouth. And, and that's a gift. It's a curse, but it's a gift. And I try to say that that's a really gift that we have, right? The, the ability to continue to, to aspire, to move forward as much as we can, even under the condition. That's a huge gift that if the roles were reversed, I'm not sure other people could do it. Because we are the bottom that people step on to get to the top, no matter what social category. And that's why I argue with people all the time. I recognize, you know, people who are, you know, who are diverse in terms of economics, in terms of religion, gender identity, you know, all those things. But I was like, put a black person in the room. And tell me exactly who you, who you think is going to be at the bottom of that pot that you're going to step on to get ahead. That's how I, I often approach. Like, I can, you know, I can think intersectionality, but I can also just be factual. Like, the facts are there. You can cut the data 300 ways. You know at least one group that's going to be at the bottom. And you're going to be like, at least I'm not y'all. Yeah. <laughs> Except when it comes to the stuff that we be doing, y'all can steal it. But you don't want to be us. Right? You want to be us, but not us. Right. Right. Yoma, this has been so wonderful. I am so... Uh, I, I'm full, right? I was hungry, like, but I'm full. Like, yeah. <laughs> yes. This has been a very joyful conversation. I mean, it's been hard. It's been challenging. But first of all, challenging the intellect is just, it's something we both love. It is. And then just, I don't know, your energy is just phenomenal. And I I, I love it. And so thank you so much. I received that. that. I received that. And I appreciate you calling on little old me. I do. I receive it. Thank you. Thank you. I really do. It means a lot. I know we spent more time than I thought, but no, it really did fill me. I think that speaks to just how much being together with your people really is filling in many ways. It, it really is. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Elephant Stories. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please subscribe, share, or just talk about what you heard. You can find my contact info in the show notes if you want to reach out. There are also links for some of the topics we covered if you want to dig deeper. I'm Tapreen Westbrook, and I produced and edited today's show. The original theme song comes from the brilliant musicians at DRTM Productions, my friends Robin and David. Talk soon.